0: Welcome to the Startup of the Year podcast, where each episode we showcase exciting new companies from around the world. This podcast is produced by Established, creators of the Startup of the Year program. Established is focused on helping organizations with their innovation, startup, and communication
1: strategies.
2: Hi everybody, and welcome back to the Startup of the Year podcast. I'm Frank Gruber, the co-founder of established, also the co-CEO, and your host of this podcast here today. On this episode, I'm talking with Mike Evans, who shares his story from behind the scenes, you know, starting up and taking Grubhub from just an idea all the way to IPO. He recently shared this story at our 2020 Start of the Year Summit. I've known Mike for many, many years, uh, since that time when he was just getting started with Grubhub, and he was promoting it, and he was actually showcasing at some of our earliest uh, tech cocktail events back in the day in Chicago around the 2006 uh, time frame. He also is going to talk about his new company, Fixer.com, which has got a really interesting uh, purpose, and, and I love, love what he's doing there, and then his forthcoming book, Hangry, which is going to share additional stories about his journey from you know, creating Grubhub, and he's done some really interesting, interesting things, including biking across the uh, entire country, which is, wow, that's amazing. Uh, But before we jump into that interview, I want to take a moment to share um, some sad news. Um, The established team has been mourning the loss of uh, the recent loss of Tony Shea, the former CEO of Zappos.com, the author of Delivering Happiness, and the man behind uh, Downtown Project, which was revitalizing downtown Las Vegas. Um, He was a visionary whose thoughts on culture and uh, just a number of, of different topics changed the e-commerce industry, industry with zappos.com. com. He was the first to put a phone number on the side of a box and put a phone number on a website and let people call and really focus on customer service. Um, this has inspired not just us but so many others to um, lead their company uh, with really solid company culture and core values, um, which is a great way to um, inspire people and also uh, manage a company. So, really, um. Lay the groundwork for that, which you see in a lot of other companies, including our own. Um, he was a very gen- generous person who dreamed big and chased the vision rather than the money. Um, and really, f- um, you know, we saw this firsthand as he was an investor in our previous company, Tech.co, which was previously called Tech Cocktail. And he worked um, really closely, with, we worked really closely with him over the last few years as we moved, both my co-CEO and I moved from Washington, D.C. to Las Vegas in 2012 to help that effort, uh, building an innovation ecosystem Um, downtown Las Vegas, while we continue to also build the company, you know, globally as well, which we eventually sold and then uh, subsequently started established in the start of the year. Um, He worked, uh, we worked downtown with him, um, but his work downtown definitely impacted so many, um, not just startups, but small businesses. Um, He, you know, you can definitely see um, what was previously a faceless downtown area has been transformed. Um, The art, the inspiration around is a lot of a lot of that's derived from Tony's um, vision, which started back in 2011, 2012. So, um, really wanted to make it a workplace, a place for live, work, and play, and change the face of where what downtown looks like. Um, sadly, uh, it, it is you know the, the project isn't done, and he's he's now gone. Uh, but his his um, you know this will live on forever, uh, and hopefully um, people will pick it back up and continue his efforts. Um, He was loved by us and and so many others. Uh, He'll be missed greatly, and um, he's gone way too soon at 46 years old. Uh, Rest in peace, Tony Shea. Now I want to share some thoughts and words of advice from our established team members. First up, we've got Rich Malloy. Uh, He's our VP of Engagement at Established and also uh, with Established Ventures. He's going to share some tips for our startup founders listening with the VC Minute. Take it away, Rich.
3: Hi, this is Rich Malloy with Established Ventures, bringing you the VC Minute. Quick advice to help startup founders fundraise better. Let's talk about the magic of the soft circle. On the last VC Minute, I talked about treating your fundraise like a sales process. But there are a few critical differences between fundraising and sales. One of which is that fundraising, there's an important stage called the soft circle. The soft circle is broadly every investor you've talked to that has not yet said yes or no, so the maybes. More specifically though, it should be the investors that have expressed interest and there's a reasonable chance you can get them to commit to the round. The way you get an investor in your soft circle grouping is by asking direct questions. If we were to close the round on Friday, would you invest? And the answer here is going to be some shade of maybe, and that's okay. The follow-up question is what concerns do you have? and this opens up a dialogue so you understand about where you can go with that investor and you can specifically ask them is it okay if i count you in my soft circle group here's the critical piece of why soft circle is so important you use it to show one investor the interest that the other investors have in your raise for example you could say something like we're raising 750k with 500k committed and another 400k soft circle the investor you're talking to knows that you won't close everything in your soft-circled. I usually take that soft-circled number and divide it by three to just make a rough estimate of where you're going to end up. But that's okay, right? You're showing that there is interest in your raise, and if they want in, they'll have to act. And this is what you're trying to do is drive action. One quick caveat, though, don't fudge these numbers and do not ever lie about who's really soft-circled and who's really committed. Your reputation will really take a ding if you overstretch. If you stretch and overstate your numbers, if you say you have 500k committed, you better be sure that's 500k and not 100k. That's all for the VC Minute. Back to you, Frank.
2: Thanks, Rich. Next up, we've got our Director of Partnerships, Jackie Dietrich. She's going to provide some updates about our, our partner programs, which are super exciting.
1: Hey, startup community. This is Jackie Dietrich with Established. Did you know we work with startup ecosystem leaders across the country to find and elevate amazing startups? I wanted to talk to you today about one of our partners, Reunion. Reunion launched in July, and it's a crowdfunding and community platform where you can help close the early stage capital gap for the next generation of world-changing wealth-building founders. As a member, you're part of building a friends and family movement for entrepreneurs of color to thrive on their own terms. There are currently a few open campaigns to fund Black, Latinx, and Indigenous founders, so stop by joinreunion.com to check it out. Also, from our partners at Halcyon, home to an incubator program for social entrepreneurs, comes a new intensive in partnership with Black Girl Ventures. The Black Girl Ventures Halcyon Intensive is open and tailored to Black and Brown women-founded ventures across the U.S. You can check Halcyon and their site for all of the application information. And finally, I want to give a huge shout out to our partners that helped connect many of the amazing startups that you saw in the 2020 Startup of the Year pitch competition this year to the program. Techstars, Tampa Bay Wave, Alice, American Inno, Bunker Labs, and Santropolis. Thank you for all that you do to support these incredible startups. If you've got a partnership idea, I'd love to hear from you. You can check the show notes for information about any of these programs or to get in touch with us. Back to you, Frank.
2: All right. Thanks so much, Jackie and Rich. Great updates as, as always. Thanks, team. Um, now I wanted to make sure you, I'm inviting all of our listeners to get involved in our programs. If you're listening and you wanna, you're wanna, you learning uh, things and you want to find out about startup opportunities, the best way to do that and get notified is to go to www.established.us forward slash programs. And you can sign up there and get notified about some of the programs that we're working on. Um, we're always adding new programs and startup opportunities from across the, uh, the various partners we work with and different organizations, as well as the ecosystems around the country. So definitely want to get uh, get in there and get those notifications and find out about maybe we're working with Works or maybe we're working with um, you know the Air Force or maybe we're working with NASA or maybe we've got new updates around our, start, our own startup program, Startup of the Year. Um, if you sign up there, you'll get notified. Okay, now let's catch up with Mike Evans, uh, the the founder of Grubhub, let's listen to the chat that uh, I had with him just a few weeks ago at our summit. Can you share, you know, why you started Grubhub and, and that story? Yeah,
0: so I started Grubhub, um, I was working at a company called Classified Ventures, they they have a few websites, apartments.com is probably the most well known. And uh, in the ripeness of my 25 years of age, I decided that working for other people really sucks. And so I was looking for something to do some sort of interesting thing to do. The idea that that I came up with was a neighborhood guide for delivery. You know, at the time, if you wanted to find a pizza, you'd go on uh, you go on the yellow pages, which is like listed alphabetically, doesn't have delivery boundaries, and you have no idea if the restaurant's are any good. And so I started by making a restaurant delivery guide, did that for a few months uh, before. And that was it was really just a hobby to start before it became a business. Um, and so the combination of selling the first restaurant and, and kind of hating working for other people
2: uh, I quit my job after, after $140 check from
0: uh, charming walk.
2: Wow. I, that's crazy. And I remember everyone had that like drawer in their apartment or condo or home where it was like all the menus, right. Especially in yeah. Chicago, I felt like there were a million menus and you had to try to figure out which one you're going to order from and, and then call them. And so yeah. you definitely, um, really
0: organized people would have them in a folder,
2: but I don't know who those right. people are. I had the drawer <laughs> yeah. I did not have the folder, but yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely felt that pain and, and interesting. I mean, so that, when did that, when was that? What year was that?
0: So that was in 2002 that I wow. started writing the website, and then um, the t- I think that I went uh, full time in I think it was 2003. I would have to look at my notes, but I think it was uh, spring 2003. Might have been 2004. Wow. I've got I've got it written down somewhere.
2: Yeah, yeah right. It all probably blur- blurs together at this point. So yeah, so okay, so that was 2003. 2006 is when you first I first met you through the, through the through the uh, showcase. Actually, ironically, at the time I was a uh, I was actually working prior to that at. Um, apartments.com I was a product for them. Yeah. So yeah. Classified Ventures alumni here. So a reunion uh, right now. But uh, yeah, so good stuff. Um, Kind of similar in Chicago, that was one of the kind of the places that internet stuff was happening. Right. Yeah. Um, And so anyway, so let's let's dive a little bit deeper. So getting that first sale, what was that like? And and what made you think, oh, gosh, this is enough. That $140 is enough to quit my job and do this.
0: Yeah, so the first sale—credit um, where credit's due. Matt made the first sale, not me. Uh, you know, I had made the website, spent about six, seven months working on it, and then uh, Matt was real interested in what I was doing, and I gave him the job. Of, I said, "Well, go sell a restaurant if you want to do this with me." And he did. He he took like a four-hour lunch break and went and sold the first restaurant. And when wow. he came back, you know, I, I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, if I could sell, if I could sell like four or five restaurants a week, and I sold them like on a three-month subscription package of like a hundred bucks a month. You know if i did that if i did that like every week for three months and then i got to the point where on month four i had renewals that were happening i could sell new restaurants on top of that i might be able to pay myself enough to like eat ramen and and pay rent i couldn't pay my school debt uh but i but whatever like i was gonna be paying that till 2036 anyway so it didn't matter man and so i was like you know yeah like my wife just finished law school and we've got 250 grand in school debt and I got a check for 140 bucks. Yeah, I'll quit my job, Like, why not? Like, of course, that's a good idea. Uh, and so uh, Matt and I, uh, we each put 11 grand into the company. We got our bonus from Classified Ventures. They had these, this crazy bonus program where like, yep, I you, remember that. Like, you had to wait till April to get it, but it was like 20% of your salary. So we each right. put 11 grand or maybe 15%, 11 grand into the business, um, which gave me enough cash to make it three months while paying myself about a $40,000 a year salary. Uh, And in that first three months, I started, I just started hustling started selling restaurants. I'd sell restaurants during the day and, uh, and I code at night. Um, And in the years intervening in between the two, I kind of forgot how hard that was. But as I've been writing this book, Hangry, and talking about um, what it was like, I've been remembering what it, what it was like. And I remember going down Clark street in Andersonville um, and going into JB's Deli and Kalo restaurant and Andy's and Reza's and, Svea and all, you know, all these restaurants that have been around for like 30 years and just getting kicked out of every one of them. Like before I could even, like I didn't get past the host or the hostess or the or the waiter or the waitress. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a, I got a selling, the, I went to Borders and I got selling for dummies. Oh,
2: and, wow, uh, no way.
0: Yeah. And, and it had a few really good tips. One of them was ask, like ask for the money. If, mm-hmm. if it's just a chat, if you don't ask for the money, it's just a friendly chat. The, right to, to be a sale you have to ask for money at some right. point in the conversation and i remember the other point that was in there was uh once you sell somebody stop selling the only thing you can really do is talk them out of the cell sale at that point so those are great but that wasn't the problem i was having having the problem i was having is i wasn't even talking to the decision maker uh, and there was this cute little story in there about like when you're trying you know it was trying to make an analogy about when you're trying to sell somebody on like on on Xerox copy copy machines because yeah. that's the, the era that we were right, in. Right, right.
2: Yeah. So I was thinking, wow, yeah, that's not at all.
0: Cute story that talked about um, you know, you if you were gonna try and sell a restaurant, you you wouldn't walk in through the front door because you just get stopped by the waitress. You like, you gotta walk into the alley. And it was meant as a metaphor and I was like, oh wait, no, that's literal advice. Like I actually have to like walk down the alley behind Clark Street right. and walk in the door. And so I did it and I was I was scared. I was, I was, I was not, it was, it was like nerve wracking to open the back door of, the, of a restaurant from the alley and walk in. And the first couple of restaurants I walked into, I got kicked out kind of aggressively. Oh, wow. But like the fourth one, I signed up and the fifth one I signed up. And so I started to realize that like, there's an element to just being bold um, and, and just taking rejection in stride and starting to sign up restaurants. And so that was yeah. how it started. I signed up the first hundred restaurants that way, just hustling.
2: Wow. That's great. And so that was the early traction. And then, you know, you raised funding in, what was it, 06? What was that like? As I remember when you guys came through Tech Cocktail uh, to showcase, at that point, you were trying to raise a little funding. And that the market in Chicago at the time was really rough from an investment perspective.
0: Yeah. And we, um, you know, we there was there was a lot to that story, right? You fast forward three years and we got some traction. We built online ordering and we had yep. won the University of Chicago's New Venture Challenge. And we still couldn't get investment, right? We had. Wow. We, you know, we were making around, I think it was right under $400,000 a year at that point, profitable, like we had yeah. bootstrapped to that point. And so you That's think amazing. like the world was our oyster, right? Yeah. And, and maybe if we had the right exposure to investors, that would have made sense. And, and, and actually the other thing we even had at the time is um, Chuck Templeton had, had come on as an advisor at that point, And he was the founder of OpenTable, right? So we sort of have all these things going for us and it took us a year of really working at it to raise financing. Um, and we got a deal from a couple of investors, the syndicate, and then that fell apart. And one of the members of the syndicate stepped up finally. And like another four months later, we, we raised $1.1 million, um, in two tranches, like, wow. and we are and, and on a, on a pretty terrible valuation. Um, but, uh, we'd are, you know, we were already profitable we were already making a pile of money, but, but then. The fact that we were profitable meant that the the $1.1 million that we raised, you know, we were able to get into four markets on just that amount of cash and then right. be profitable again at the end of that.
2: Right. Cause you'd had built a business. you had already built a business. So it was the yeah. Right I mean, if, you, if you're
0: paying attention to the story, like pretty early on we were selling restaurants before we had right. online ordering, like we sold on a, we, we sold on a subscription model. And in fact, that first hundred restaurants that signed up, I, I realized somewhere around like restaurant number 10 that, Going in with either a laptop or even printouts of what the what the delivery guide looked like. I mean, that's literally what I did. Like those things wow. were those things were somewhat more effective when I was like showing, showing the the restaurateur, like how this would benefit them and how they had a need that I could I could meet. But actually it turned out to be way more effective for me to just say, look, you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur, just take a chance on me and see if it works. Right. I just what kind are of. Are and that I, my close rate on that line was like seventy five percent, and the wow. close rate on like the features of the website was like fifty percent. Right. So I stopped selling the product and I just started selling myself for the for that first hundred restaurants anyway. And that I mean that's how we got the early traction.
2: Yeah, I mean what you just honed in on is relationships, right? Like you 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 honed in on a relationship with a person is actually more important than the features on a cool website.
0: Yeah, that was absolutely true. Now repeat purchases and yeah. long time customers, the, the product has to work, right? Right. Yeah. uh and so um you know that that's what we learned through 2006 to 2007 we raised that financing in late in late 2006 um and by in a, two years later we raised another round of financing and we were in 11 and we were in uh 11, 11 or 14, 14 markets um two years wow. later on three million dollars wow. in investment
2: that's amazing um so let's let's keep moving here with the so you got that round of funding that helped um i think i wanted to hone back into the the fact that you, you basically, a lot of times right now, people are raising on ideas, right? And you you had raised on a product that you had built and actually proven with bootstrapping. And I think that's a huge differentiator for you. And I, I don't know, what do you think about some of the things that are happening out there in the world with investment with, you know, when you have just an idea and you're, you're trying to raise like on a huge valuation?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's not like a simple answer to that question, right? One of the challenges of bootstrapping is that you pretty much have to be the technical co-founder. You can't, you can't hire somebody to do that and then bootstrap right. on it, right? And so I, I I, wrote the software myself. And so right. I had, I was taking, in some sense, the investment that I had was, I went to MIT, I got right. a degree in computer science, right. and then I was able to write the code, right? And not everybody can do that. Um, and so I had sort of pre-invested in myself to be able to do that in, so- in some sense. And that's why I had $250,000 in school debt. So arguably that was the investment, right? Maybe I didn't actually bootstrap, I just had loans. Um, But you know, I I am a big fan of as early in the process as possible, turn it from a hobby into a business. You know, people ask this question of, uh, they do this thing called market research, which is total bullshit, where (laughs) they ask potential customers, would you buy this thing? And you know what everybody says? Yes, I would buy this thing. You know what people don't say yes to? Will you buy this thing right now? Like right now, Yeah. yeah. And getting a yes to that second question is not only harder, but it's a lot more valuable than would you buy this this thing? You know, as an aside, uh, it's the same reason that NPS is total bullshit. Like why why would you ask somebody if they would refer you to a friend as opposed to asking somebody to refer you to a friend? Like right. the second thing is really valuable. The first thing is just a vanity
2: metric. Right, totally. So there's a lot of vanity metrics out there and we can talk about it a little bit later. Let's keep moving ahead with the Grubhub story. So you guys raised that first couple rounds you ended up raising five rounds and where do you want to dive in what was the what are some memory points there of like what it was like to you know raise those multiple rounds how did that make you guys feel as founders what was that whole journey like
0: yeah there were a couple of key points between the the second round of financing and the first big round of finance the, you know the first two rounds we did were 1 million and 2 million respectively and then yep. um the next the next round was 11 million and we eventually closed from benchmark mm-hmm. and you know, in the interim, as we as we grew, you know, we we were in 14 cities. We were profitable. We were growing at around 80% year over year. Our cost per acquisitions were good. Our our law, our lifetime value of customers were good. You know, we were able to sign up restaurants pretty fast. We were getting to the point where we had 15 to 20% of the restaurants in each of our markets signed up on the platform. Uh, and by the way, it was all, indep- all, independents, all ind- independent, all independent, all independent restaurants. Very no chains. The largest chain was, chain was Leona's in Chicago, which was 10 restaurants. Wow. So and we had a lot of traction, right? Um, and and it looks like there was a huge adjustable market, right in in the billions. And so we started we, we decided on the on the labor on Labor day, uh, the day after Labor day we got a we got a meeting with Excel um, mm-hmm. to go and go in, and pitch them in the valley. We decided we were going to go to Silicon Valley, go down um, Sand Hill Road and pitch the big pitch the big firms. Yes, and like the combination of us getting that first meeting with it was actually with a principal at uh, with a partner at Excel, not a principal, and um, which is by the way important that not not all people within an investment firm are the same. Talking to the like is like one tenth as valuable as talking to a partner. Yeah, I digress. So yep. um, so we had that first meeting set up. Chuck leaked leaked to the, everybody that he could could. Find, you know, he was on our board at that point. That that we were that we had this meeting with Excel, and we were going to be in town. Mm-hmm. And this crazy thing happened, where it created this feeding frenzy. Like we 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 somehow managed to create so much FOMO um, before showing up. Like we were, like there's this Chicago team coming to Silicon Valley, and there was they were like th- they were going to this hot new thing that had somehow gotten overlooked. And we'd only had taken three million dollars in in capital, but we were making at that point. In in the probably in the uh, four three to four million a year in revenue profitably right? right so like that's that's a rare kind of a rare thing yeah um, and so the Excel meeting got the, that was like at one p.m. and then so then Sequoia wanted to meet us at eleven a.m. and then um, another firm wanted to meet us at nine so then Benchmark said well we'll all show up at seven and so like we had like Four, like it was crazy. It was like benchmark, <laughs> Sequoia, battery, Excel, seven, oh, nine, 11, and one, right? Wow, which is just nuts. Like that doesn't happen, right? Um, and so we and we went into the benchmark meeting, and like, you know, I, we had a we had a very well rehearsed, very well thought through plan, and I played the quant, and Matt was kind of the salesman, and and by the time the fifteen minute the fifteen minutes we were scheduled scheduled went like an hour and a half right? Wow. And so like We knew we had them. We knew we had them. In the final line of our presentation, you know, an hour in, Matt's like, well, here's our bottom-up analysis on total address, or I said here's our, our bottom-up analysis on total addressable market, and here's our top-down. I'm really gutting into the quant numbers, and Matt just, like, interrupts me and says, the point is, it's crazy billions. <laughs> and, like, the, the firm, like, cheers. Like, Benchmark is, like, clapping for us. Oh, and my like, God. Oh, I guess we just got investment. And so, yeah. by the end of that by 24 hours later we had term sheet from battery sequoia and benchmark like simultaneously which is very hard to pull off yeah and, and, and it was really hard to choose from those between those three firms like we couldn't have made a wrong choice we ended up going with, with benchmark um, with 11 million dollars we quit we pretty quickly did a follow-on round there's a few firms in the valley follow-on rounds for sort of the top tier firms at a yeah. higher valuation so we did the 11 million dollar investment and then Five days later, we got an offer for twenty million dollars investment at four four x the post that we had just closed.
2: Wow! Um, because
0: this this other firm um, that did these follow-on investments, that was their model. Like, we're never gonna we're never gonna get first look at any of these things. But if for twenty percent of their investments, we just do a crazy valuation and put some money in, yep, um, we'll get in. And so interestingly, that twenty million dollars we never used it. Our bank account never dropped below twenty million dollars. Wow. After. And so in some sense it was great to have the backup, but in some other sense it was unnecessary dilution.
2: Wow, that's amazing. And so when did the light go on that you're like, wow, this is a train to IPO?
0: So we um, we, we raised another 50 million a little bit later to buy campus food, which, which right. at the time brought us from 50 markets into 200. Um, and we started the ipo process right there we we knew we knew um pretty much right after that that we had enough scale we knew that we had to get to about 100 million in revenue uh we were profitable again like we after you know after the dip after the 11 million dollar investment benchmark we got back to profitability and then we were profitable by the way forever like the company has never not been profitable after that and it's so weird you see these wall street journal articles about grubhub being not profitable i'm like the company has had one quarter in the last ten years, wow. So why is that? Why are they reporting it that way? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to imagine the folks that uh, in the investment investor relations team at Growhub are like,
2: "What the heck? Can't get yeah. a break?
0: Like this yeah. is nuts." Um, mm-hmm. But the company's been profitable for a long time, and in fact, Wall Street values profit so little relative to revenue. The company has taken a strategy of acquiring acquiring other companies and. Having yeah. a really large development team and all of these things, just because it, the Wall Street doesn't value that profit, um, trying to build long-term competitive advantages. But
2: that's okay. that's post-IPO strategy. That's right. I well, we 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 over the the merger there with Seamless, which was a big competitor, right? That had to be interesting as well. So we didn't look over it because
0: what oh, we actually okay. decided is we, we decided to do an IPO. Yeah. We um, filed confidentially. This was before the merger of Seamless. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. We, uh, we filed the merger confidentially. We went all the way through the SEC comment period, and at the time, um, you actually couldn't transmit the filing, the S one, to the SEC. You literally had to show up and do it. Oh wow! My paper, and so getting down to like a couple days away before the IPO uh, filing, before the filing goes public, um, which would have been which would have started like a a ninety day time window to do the roadshow and like all this stuff before the before the actual IPO. And we're all the way down to that point. And there's this problem and the problem is Seamless. Seamless mm-hmm. is so big in Manhattan, but they they weren't big anywhere else. Right. But all of the investment bankers are in Manhattan. So like oh. the price of the company is gonna really suffer as a result of our, our inability to break into the Manhattan market. Like we had, right. we had cornered Brooklyn and the rest of New York, but just Manhattan um, Seamless owned with like an iron fist. And wow. seamless didn't have any markets anywhere else. Like we beat them everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the con- so the conversation had come up several times: should we merge with them? And so by this point, we're down to a couple of days before the IPO. And you know, the the first rule of negotiations is understand your BATNA. Understand what your uh, your best alternative to negotiated agreement. And right. and when we're talking to seamless, our BATNA is we're going to IPO in a few days, which. <laughs> It does not get better than that. And it literally got down to the point where the attorneys were sitting across from the whatever building it is, you file the paperwork at the SEC, like getting parking tickets while just sitting there with the paper in hand saying like, you agree or we file, right? Like oh it really did come down to like That's a game of chicken like that. And, yeah. you know, I say that because it was very adversarial to start. Um, yeah. And the team at Seamless was amazing. And uh, and six months later, I was kind of like, man, we were kind of assholes to them, and uh, and actually, they were great people that had been trying to solve the same problem that we had been trying to solve for years, and our teams really got along really well, um, right. and I have a tremendous amount of respect for for the for the folks who were there, and so I tell this story like it was some triumphant thing, but right. actually, we probably should have just like. Merged a year and a half earlier, and and spent our time pulling in the same direction instead of having huge ego about the whole thing. So I tell this story like it's this triumph, but actually, we could have done a lot better. Right. And so then just after, so we I ran the merger uh, of the two companies, and part of the reason I ran the merger is because I knew that at the IPO that was the finish line for me. I knew that I was going to get to the IPO, yep. and I was gonna I was gonna leave and go on and do my own thing. Uh, and because because I was going to leave for the IPO. It's really easy for me to be the scapegoat for all the tough decisions that have to happen with the merger. Like you don't you need two heads of marketing, you don't need two heads of business development. There was a whole office in Salt Lake City that um, that was redundant with the customer service team that we had in Chicago. And like, part of the reason you merge with another company is because there's inefficiencies in having some of those things doubled up. And so, right. I I became the scapegoat for all of the tough decisions because I knew I was going to be on the way out. Mm-hmm. I underestimated how emotionally difficult it's going to be for like right. hundreds of people to hate you. Right, uh, right. And so uh I didn't I didn't do well with that. Um but but I we got through it and the merger was a success. And then and then we we at from that point we started the prep and ultimately went
2: through an IPO. Wow, really took one for the team. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean as far as taking, you know, be, being the fall guy basically for all those different changes.
0: I mean, I I don't want to oversell like yeah. How selfless it was. There's something really satisfying about running a merger of a multi-thousand person company.
2: Yeah, no, it's amazing that's triumph too. Amazing. <laughs> you you you, I, you IPO'd and then left and that's amazing. You know, like yeah. I think that's a a great story too. So I'm just saying that's um I applaud you for that. So tell Thanks. me running the, running that what was that like like the being that point person on the IPO like what were the emotions there for you like being the first, you know, you coded this thing to begin with.
0: Yeah, so to, to be fair, I was the point person on the merger, the CFO, Adam, was the point person on the, on the idea. Oh, got it, okay, yeah, okay. You know, it, something happened when I took that first round of investment, and Chuck told me this before we took the money, and he mm-hmm. said, when you take an investor, it's not your company anymore. Even if you only sold a fraction of 1%, you are yeah. now running a company for shareholders. And make sure that like you understand that before you take the money, or you're gonna have buyer's remorse. And and I did understand that. And so when I sold a chunk of the company for a million dollars way back in 2006, yeah. um, I I made the decision to not be as emotionally attached to it. It is now a business that I'm running. It's not my baby anymore. I'm going to run it well. Uh, and then every investment that happens in like post that first decision was was simply a matter of more degree the thing that I had already done, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was super happy that with the merger with Seamless, Grubhub got the brand name. Like that's not people talk about egos and M and A transactions a lot, and that was not a minor point for any of us at the Grubhub I'm team. I'm sure, yeah. And it wasn't a minor point for the folks at the Seamless team, but but that team was they weren't the founders, and so right. they probably didn't care quite as much as I did. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, at every step along the way, I lost a little piece of it. But the other thing that happened that happens along with the emotion of losing that piece is that I also lost a little bit more control about where the company was going and that was fine up to a point but what what we had in 2006 which was a company that was very oriented towards the restaurant um, and and was really a beneficial for small businesses you know that I don't know that that's still true as much as it was, you know, post IPO. And I have, there's a lot of reasons for this, like the ownership, you know, the public owners of a company care about different things than private owners of a company, and they care about quarterly profits. And, and so um, a lot of the decisions that came post IPO really opened the company up for competition, specifically with DoorDash, and not as much with Uber Eats, but with DoorDash. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that's because the company had to have ever-increasing like take rates from restaurants to be able to guarantee the quarterly profit increase that public investors require mm-hmm. and um, and i and i think that that has made it less beneficial to restaurants and and the other thing that's happened since the ipo is that the um that it really has di- the companies really dived in on on gig economy and and i think that i think that the way that that has been done really subs- the, it, it requires both individuals who don't have a lot of means and mm-hmm. um, and municipalities to subsidize the profit of the company, uh, and and I think it's wrong. And so, the thing that really bothers me about losing control is not um, is not that I lost control of my baby, but that um, my ability to influence the sort of doing good while doing well diminished right. to the point where now it's zero. I'm not a part of the company anymore. Well, it's not zero. I'm, I'm writing a book about this, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, but so you're always I, have it in your heart. <laughs> yeah. So but by the time I left for the IPO, I was really angry at the way wow. the company was headed. Uh wow. and and not only not only angry from like a from a like like big picture perspective, I was also just tired. Like I had worked, you know, 80 to 100 hour weeks for a decade and yeah. I was burnt out. Yeah. Um and I'd run the merger, and that had not been a popular thing to do. And so by the time right. I left, it was a little bit like, fuck this, I'm out. Like, right. It, right. and it's weird because it's hard to say like, oh, you just had this amazing experience you IPO, IPO'd your company, like it is mm-hmm. it is the big success. Uh, but that's, and that is a mountaintop experience, but after the mountaintop experience comes the crash. Right. And a lot of people who sell their companies go through this, whether it's an IPO or an acquisition with right. an or whatever, where like after that moment of like, yeah, I did it. It's like, oh, now yeah. What? No,
2: um, you, you kind of you lose your, a little bit of, of yourself in that. I mean, I, I felt that way with Tech Cocktail and Techco for a little while, and now we're back doing similar things. So, I definitely hear you. I obviously, wasn't as big of an IPO as what you guys did, but w- what did you do to do that to kind of get through that? I I kind of know the answer to this, but I want you to tell me. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, um, so twenty nine days after the IPO was mm-hmm. my final day at work and, and I, I took that day to ride my bike down to, a uh, I put my bike in the back of a rented van and drove to Virginia Beach from Chicago yep. uh, to start a, a cross-country bike ride. So I rode my bicycle across the United States. Um, and, uh, and part of it was just to decompress, part of it was to spend time listening and being present um, mm-hmm. after, after the insanity that I had been through over the previous decade. Right. Um, and part of it was just to, how do I put this? Just to make sure that I understood that my shit still smelled. That's probably the best way to put it. Like, you know, there was some moment on the road show, the, the day before the IPO, where I literally yeah. was on a private jet going to New York City for the IPO, paid for by city with like shrimp cocktail and lobster and steak tartare and Dom Perignon and like, right. it was insane. Right. And then there was a moment four weeks later on the bike trip
2: mm-hmm.
0: where a kid a kid from like a local church in Kansas thought I was homeless and like <laughs> offered me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich.
2: It's so like, like it's like lifestyle's the rich is famous and like homeless. Yeah. I mean that's where we are, right?
0: That's, yeah, and when you think wow. about who like City bought me the one meal and this right. kid made this sandwich. And which yeah. of those, like I, I don't wanna I, the work the city did was great, and the people were really smart and really hardworking. But but the one person, the one entity is is completely consumed with the acquisition of wealth. And the other person was trying to connect and help someone that they thought was in need. I was not in need. I had my right. Mac and cheese. I was happy. It was were good, yeah. But the but the but the sentiment was really moving. Mm-hmm. And uh and and I think comparing and contrasting those two things, it was a little bit like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want that former lifestyle. That's that way doesn't lead towards happiness, right? Right. And so, uh, and the latter, well, I'm not sure that riding a bike across the country is a long-term happiness kind of thing either. It was kind of, <laughs> cruel. but um, but there was something to that. There was something to that moment that um, I was able to recapture a little bit of the of the naive, excited person that started Grow Hub back in back when I was 25. You know, 50, you know. 14 years later.
2: Wow. That's amazing. How long did that journey take? About three months
0: uh, to ride across the country. Um, wow. And and I got faster as I went, right? So I was real slow in the Appalachians, I went east to west, uh, mm. and I got away faster in the Great Plains. And by the time I got to the mountains, they weren't even hard. Like I was like, oh yeah, the Rockies, cool, that's fun. So uh, it was great. Um, yeah.
2: And what, is there anything, we're going to dive into your next company here in a second, but w- was there anything? just kind of final thoughts about the country you saw a lot of the country from the ground level with that you know things like handing your peanut your kids offering your peanut peanut butter sandwich to like little towns along the way is there anything glaring that kind of stood out
0: yeah one of the things that really so chuck templeton joined me for a week of it uh who had who had been on the board and was and founded open table and and one of the things we were talking about in one of the towns in uh in i think uh, it must have been montana maybe wyoming was that um, there was a lot of towns maybe three out of four towns where you go through main street and a lot of the re- a lot of the businesses are shuttered and then as you pass the interstate there's a Walmart and a Target and like all the economic activi- activities happening by the interstate in big box stores and oh. a lot of the vibrant downtown has closed up right but then like one out of every four cities you'd come up, come to a main street and it was just booming and vibrant and there were parks and there'd be people playing music and there was community events and and there was something different. And some of those even still had the Walmart, but somehow the Walmart parking lot was half full, right? There was something about like 25% of the the communities that I rode through. Mm -hmm. And I came up with the theory as I went, which was there was somebody here who cared. There was somebody here and you'd see their names and you'd see their pictures on the walls in like the little diner, somebody who was like, I'm gonna make sure that this that what we have here is special and that it, it's preserved and that we grow it and and the community rallied around that one or two people would rally around it and it was it was weird seeing that from Virginia to, to Oregon like right. the same same thing happening again and again and again where there's like an example of an individual who, who put in the effort and um, and I found that really
2: compelling that was a, that was a part of um, what I ended up doing next interesting so let's dive right into that i mean that's it makes a lot of sense let's go into your next company so you created this, this latest company fixer.com and maybe share a little bit about the backstory there I mean, it almost feels like it should be the reverse like first you wanted to solve you know grabbing a pizza and obviously there's been the getting a ride from an app kind of situation um, why didn't this exist before <laughs> you know yeah
0: um fixer so so in the interim between uh, between the bike ride and my next company, I, I stayed a couple a year uh, home a couple of years with my daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And that was great. Uh, I really wanted to spend that time with her. And then then I started to think about I have a lot of assets that I that are active me my relationships with um, investors, my relationships with other people who I've worked with in the past, um, you know, my skills, like, I'm not sure that they're growing anymore. And so I started to get a desire to to build something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I, I have thinking a lot I've been actually doing a lot of volunteering with a refugee organization um, and then the and then the refugee ban that trump trump issued came through and uh, and the number of people coming coming in really dried up and so
1: um,
0: I was like okay well I have to do something more strategic than just like putting bunk beds together for people uh, and so I started looking around for an industry where it was fragmented um, there was a really bad consumer experience nothing was online and construction, Really just fit those three things. And when we did, when I did like the root cause analysis, started doing some research, um, it turns out that the reason why the consumer experience is so bad in the in the construction industry, um, especially residential, is there just aren't enough workers to do the work. And so there's no need to innovate for the the people who, the independent operators who who are handymen, they do great work. They're great craftsmen. But there's no reason for them to, to answer the phone in the middle of the day. They're fine just letting them go to voicemail and calling back the people that they want to call back. So if you have a two hour right. job that you want done, it's yeah. not going to get done because the person who would do it is fully booked because yeah. the supply is constrained relative to the demand. All right, so definitely found account, that. 101. It's hard. It's hard to find a handyman or woman. Yeah. yeah and so the consumer experience is bad. The, the, it's hard to find a person. You can't find a handy woman, it's mostly handyman. Right. right? So there's a gender imbalance within the within the trades. Yep. Uh, and so Macroeconomics 101 says if the supply is constrained and demand is, is high and increasing, price should be higher. And so we couldn't figure out why it cost 60 bucks an hour to hire a handyman, but then you had to wait six weeks. Cause like the the obvious solution to that is like charge more, right? right. And yeah. hire an apprentice, right? Like that's right. in my mind, it's like, oh, we'll charge more, show up earlier and, and hire an apprentice because you're not doing anyone favors by just being overbooked and charging a lower, lower price. Right. Um, and so we decided that we were gonna launch a W2 employee based company where we trained people from scratch and increased the supply. That's, and so the company is a, we, we like to say it's a, a training, a, a trade school disguised as a startup. We're not a trade school yet, we don't have our accreditation, but we're a training center. Mm-hmm. And so we, we train people from, from scratch to enter the trades. Um, and then we have a great consumer experience where, um, it's an app based experience and there's really good customer service and we communicate with people instantly and like all of those things that you expect when you use your phone as a remote control these days. Uh, but it's backed by this supply of workers that we've trained ourselves. Right, and so, right. um, that's the business. I think it's going to be as big or bigger than Grubhub.
2: Wow. And so all those are employees. Then they're not. So you're not leveraging that same gig economy that you just you know don't don't agree with. It sounds like. You know what
0: blows my mind that you're surprised. You know, for three thousand years, what we did was hire employees, and then. No, I think it's great. I'm not. I'm just surprised because I know that. I know everyone's surprised. Yeah. But like ten years ago, suddenly gig economy became the thing. Right. And like. We we as a society collectively forgot that this is not the way things were done for a really really long time, and it Correct. turns out hiring employees is great, and it's yep. great because you because of retention, and yep. because you know it actually really matters that we show up on time, so it's important that we say to our employees like you have to be here on time, and yep. you can't do that with with uh, 1099 contractors. So between training people and investing them and retaining
2: them. A W-2 employee model is absolutely the right way to go. Right. Um, and so that's the path we've taken. So that makes sense. And then I think the reason is that we all directly go to that gig economy approach is because there's been a just a push in general for everyone to scale, right? And so they think, well, if you don't, if you have to hire all these people, how are you going to scale quick enough and all that kind of stuff? So I think well,
1: that's that But I want to
0: challenge you
2: on that. Right. Because like, why is gig economy scaling faster? Like what,
0: like what about gig economy? Cause you still have to have a funnel of people that come yeah. into your hiring plot process. You still have to run the process. You still have to guarantee safety, like yep. filling out the paperwork to become a W2 employee doesn't exactly take any longer. No. And like, I, I don't understand Uber's fight against the idea of, and Grubhub's fight against the idea of, of an employee model because mm-hmm. like, we, well, it's not like you can hire people part-time and I'm like, you, like, you can't, don't a lot of companies hire They do, yeah,
2: all the time. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's like, so I'm not sure that the, yeah. the gig economy equals scale
2: faster. No. I don't know that there's a logical basis for that argument. No, there isn't. It's a perception. I think that's what I was getting at, is that the the perception, oh, well, just it's just because that's the way it's been done for so long, and I, it, I'm saying so long, like 10 years maybe at the most. So I think it's a really interesting model, and I applaud you for doing it that way, and I, I really think that um, you got something there. So let's talk a little bit more about what that means. From a growth perspective, and you know where you're, you know what you're doing right now as far as your focus. I think mainly on Chicago. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, we're starting our market expansion in Q1 of next year. So we're, we're, you know, right now we're in the ramp up to it uh, because right. we've proven the model out here um, and are doing, you know, thousands of jobs here. And so right. it took a little bit longer to figure out the operational, uh, operational um, elements to it. Make sure that uh, the customer service element is good and. Um, and figure out the training center, and then, frankly, we figured out the training center, which was in person. Uh, then COVID happened, and so we had to move the training center to right. a hybrid model, right. and that took some time too. Probably delayed our expansion a little bit, um, but provided that, uh, provided everything goes goes well, um, you know, in a couple months in January, like it, it like it, as long as that goes well, um, from a COVID perspective, then we're going to be starting our, our market expansion.
2: Right, yeah, everything's a little bit up in the air this year. It's been a wild year, and COVID really threw a wrench in a lot of expansion and, and growth for companies. But it sounds like you're you're doing okay. So, what um, ha- with this company, did you? Is it I mean? It sounds like you did you bootstrap it and kind of get it going that way, or what? What's been the model as far as how you? How you Hell
0: no, it? I didn't bootstrap it. <laughs> Hell no, I ain't gonna work that hard again.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, there was no reason for me to do to bootstrap it because after a, a multi-billion-dollar IPO, like investors take my calls, right? So it was pretty easy for us to raise cash. We actually raised a lot. We raised $10 million um, Mm -hmm. to to go and have at this. Um, And so, uh, and part of it was, I just wanted to start more quickly. It's a lot easier to start with a team of seven, you know, who I've worked with in the past and just Mm -hmm. go for it than it would have been to bootstrap it, which takes takes more time. You have to do a lot more carefully, a lot
2: more methodically. That makes sense. Okay. And is this company, you mentioned, you think it's going to be bigger than Grubhub. Is this, is your path like, you know, keep going to IPO kind of situation or what's, what's the goal?
0: Yeah, it's funny. Everybody should do an IPO once. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody would do it twice, you know, except for maybe Elon Musk. Um, Right. You know, I, I think think this company is not going to go public because uh, we're, we're a benefit corporation. We exist for two reasons. We exist to, uh, to, Create profit for shareholders, like every company does, but we there's an equal mandate to increase the skill and diversity of trades in the communities we serve, and those two things are of equal importance in our corporate charter, the public benefit corporation charter, which is a really rare legal structure, and um, I think that there there are some B corps that are on on the public stock market, um, but I think that. Uh, doing the extra work of having to explain the difference to investors is not something that we really wanna spend as much energy towards, as much as um, just creating both the profit and the benefit uh, simultaneously, right. for the communities that we're in. Um, so we, we do think about exits, but, but um, you know the, the IPO would have to be a little bit different than the last one that if we did. And, and there's even um, Eric Reese, who wrote uh, the Lean Startup Movement. He, he created an organization called Long-Term Stock Exchange Right. Um, which does actually sound a little bit more appealing than say NICE or NASDAQ, but um, uh, it, that's in its infancy still. So it'd be right. interesting to see um, where we get to by that point.
2: Yeah, and I read out there somewhere that your goal is to reboot the uh, trade education in the United States. That's a pretty amazing goal. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, Star is supposed to have a big, hairy, audacious goal, right? And right. so reboot trade education in the United States is, is that. Um, you know, we think we can get to the point where we're training 10,000 people a year to enter the trades. And uh, and frankly, as they upskill, they have a lot of potential to either start their own businesses or specialize and go into higher income earning um, uh, specializations like electrical or plumbing or something like that that are that are more specialized than a handy person or roofing or masonry or whatever the case may be. And right. so um, you know, the idea that we can be an entry path into sole proprietorship or we can be. Um, an entry path into unions um, because we have a, a group of skilled workers that are that are sort of graduating from our program. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we think that there's there's a really valuable place for us to play in that ecosystem.
2: That's great. I love it. Well, let's let's switch gears here and talk about your your soon to be coming out uh, book, Hangry. Um, can you share some details about Hangry? And I, I mean, we I love to hear 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 more about it and what's the kind of what the backbone and what you're thinking with that is.
0: Yeah, so Hangry is the story of um, founding the company, uh, running it through the IPO, founding Grubhub, running through the IPO, and then and then riding my bike across the United States. And it's, um, it's funny. It's sort of like, a, it's like mostly business book, but also travel a little bit in there too. Um, right. You know, it's meant to be entertaining as much as it is is to be enlightening. Uh, but, you know, I, I really struggled with a lot of things emotionally. Um, you know, there's the start where I'm making this thing and it's really hard. And it's really exciting. But then as things grow, you, you make compromises, personal and business-wise, and those are not without emotional shrapnel. right? And so exploring what that is a little bit, and then sort of my recovery ride um, and seeing the country and, and, and taking that time to, to realize what some of the lessons I learned during the company when I wasn't like in it was really helpful.
2: And so I shared some of that through the book. That's amazing. Okay, so can you share maybe some of your, like what's your favorite part of this book? Um,
0: you know, I, honestly, just the, the first chapter where like what it took to start the thing, um, th- There's there's some in- I think there's some interesting stories in there. You know, there's this one point where, you know, Google Apps, Google Maps didn't exist at the time, but I had to turn street addresses into latitude longitude, so I had to write a geocoder. I actually downloaded the data from a government, like database, a wow. government FTP server, in fact. Um, I had to download like, a terabyte of data, of, of the census data, you know, right. online. It was not much faster than a dial-up connection. It took like a week. And then writing the code to turn that into a geocoder, you know, gave me a three-year head start on anybody else, unless they wanted to pay MapQuest, which was like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Right. Um, and so there's a story about that, about like um, the things that are barriers, they're, they're liabilities, right? Until you, until you pass them and then they're an asset because everybody else has to jump over that same
2: hurdle. Yeah, right. I mean that geocoder in itself could have been a company, right? I mean that's 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 not. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Like I made Google Maps three years
0: before Google Maps came out, right? Uh, and it didn't dawn on me that that was a business. Like, oops. Right. No. Yeah.
2: It's harder. It's a harder, harder direct correlation. Um, okay, so that's really a cool story. I, I love that. And maybe share who is this book for? Who do you hope to, to get this book in the hands of? You know, I think
0: anyone who. Um, wants to see what the startup journey is and suspects that just following the script doesn't work mm-hmm. right there's this idea that there's a way to create a startup and it's go to an accelerator or maybe go on Shark Tank or whatever and it's totally false like the companies that actually really succeed as startups there's some part of the script that they've decided is wrong and they're going to do it their way and mm-hmm. and they're saying that for a product for a customer and they say it about the startup journey and i think Anyone who sort of feels like maybe the script is a lie, um, whether you're in in normal the normal corporate world or in the startup world, I, I think this book is really going to resonate with anyone that feels that way. Right.
2: That's fantastic. What um, what's the date it's coming out?
0: It'll be out in January of twenty three. So it'll be a little while, but um, uh, the you can pre order it by just emailing uh, emailing me at pre order at mikeevans Okay.
2: And so that's how you can get the book now and get, or get get the pre-orders in. So if you're out there, go to MikeEvans.com and you can, uh, you said pre-order at MikeEvans.com. Is how they yeah, it. just send me
0: an email and then basically I'll send you the link as soon as I have the pre-order link.
2: Perfect, okay. All right, so I think we, we've talked through a lot here. Um, wanted to, do you have any final thoughts or actually before we get started with that, final thoughts, what are your, any any like words of wisdom or encouragement for the hundred startups they're, they're pitching here at Startup Year? Yeah, I would say that
0: the one of the big things I learned at Hub, and one of the things I'm still learning now is that, is that startups that do good, do better. But being intentional about how you create value for your community and your, and your customers and your employees creates a company that is resilient to shocks and grows and can work through the growing pains that every startup has. And so, um, it, it's really important to think about what the goal of a company is beyond. I want to make a pile of money, right? Right. If that's your only goal, you should really just be scratching lotto tickets. Like you need to create real value for people and those people need to be your customers and your employees and yourself, um, and your community. It's not just about the investors. And so that's, I think the thing that that's sort of the drum I'm beating the most these days is that intentionality really matters.
2: Well that was a fun listen. glad that uh, glad we did that I'm so so great to, to catch up with Mike. Uh, it's been a while and uh, hope you learned something new about the history of Grubhub or took something home about some of the knowledge you shared about you know how to how to run your own company. Um, also you know wish I wish Mike the best of luck with fixer.com and his new book which is coming out soon uh, next year I think uh, hangry and uh, it, you can actually go sign up on his website for updates. So if you go to mikeevans.com, you'll learn more about it and you can sign up for updates about his uh, book when it comes out. All right. Thanks again, listeners. for And remember to subscribe to our show and review it if you can, because we, we definitely want to read the reviews and try to continue to improve our show every single day. And uh, if you have a startup idea and you want to get something going right away, remember, today is the best day to start up. Today, not tomorrow, today. I'm Frank Ruber signing off. Stay safe out there and be well.
0: Thanks for listening to the Startup of the Year podcast. Be sure to subscribe and we'll be back with another episode soon.